0: We can't afford to to produce this really high-quality food and then let someone else suck all the profit out of it. Uh, That doesn't make any sense. So what we need to focus on economically here is not only producing high-quality product that people are willing to pay for, but how am I going to keep the wealth I generate from this land in the community?
1: Welcome to the 300th installment of Ear to the Ground, the Land Stewardship Project's podcast on family farming, regenerative agriculture, community food systems, and local democracy. I'm Brian DeVore, editor of the Land Stewardship Letter. It's no secret that the foundation of a successful regenerative farming operation is diversity. After all, if we are farming in nature's image, then it makes sense to adopt a basic tenet of complex ecological systems. The key role diversity plays in a successful farming operation has become particularly clear in recent years as a result of climate change, the COVID pandemic, and geopolitical upheaval. As Central Illinois farmer Dave Bishop likes to say, diversity is the antidote to adversity. Bishop's Prairie Earth Farm is certainly putting that philosophy into practice. Along with corn and soybeans, the 450-acre certified organic operation produces vegetables, beef cattle, pork, flowers, and small grains such as wheat. This farm started out as a pretty conventional operation in the late 1970s, but a devastating drought in 1988 sent the Bishop family scrambling for a way to add more resiliency to their business. They began by reintroducing livestock into the operation and other enterprises followed in subsequent years. The products from this operation are direct marketed and Dave is a master at identifying profitability in hidden corners of the farm. Like when he realized Wheat Lacoche, otherwise known as corn smut, make a diseased looking corn cob worth five bucks in the specialty food market. Dave emphasizes that diversifying a farming operation isn't just about throwing spaghetti at the wall and seeing what sticks. One needs to make sure various enterprises play well together agronomically and economically. The farmer feels strongly that diversity in marketing and sales options is also key to success. Prairie Earth learned that the hard way when the pandemic hit and restaurants shut down. Within seven days, Vegetables sold to restaurants went from 30% of their market to zero. That lesson taught Prairie Earth that they couldn't do everything and that they needed to work with other businesses in the community to provide the kind of processing, marketing, and transportation infrastructure that allows farms to be profitably diverse. I recently ran into Dave Bishop at the annual meeting of the Montana Organic Association in Billings. After he gave a presentation on building a better food system post-pandemic, I talked to him about the role diversity plays in his operation and how it can make formerly unprofitable enterprises real moneymakers. While an auction was taking place next door, Dave also discussed why all the diversity in the world does little good if farmers don't have a community-based food system infrastructure available to support them. Diversity adds resiliency not just to farm fields and pastures. As he argues, food webs are more critical than ever, as rural communities struggle with the economic, social, and health costs of being food deserts. Dave, you gave a really good um, kind of description of how you're integrating different enterprises on your operation, and one of the things you talked about, which I think is really important, is diversity is really, sounds like it's a real cornerstone of what you're doing and a real keystone foundation of what you're doing there, but it's not just about getting as many enterprises going as you can and getting everything established and, and of throwing spaghetti at the wall a little bit there's you've got a real method to the madness and i was wondering if you could talk about that a little
0: bit i think that'd be great well one example was livestock uh you know we livestock is a fundamental component to any kind of regenerative form of agriculture and finding ways to utilize different kinds of livestock to complement each other is really important rather than saying, well i'm just going to get a bunch of cows and that's all i'm going to have all right but if you add some poultry to that they could follow those cows around and finish spreading the manure, eat the fly larvae out of the manure, lay eggs, and pay you for doing it. If you're feeding your cattle in the winter someplace and you come up with a big pile of manure, getting hogs in the summer not only produces a good income, but they compost all that cow manure and they do it free. And not only do they do it free, they pay you for doing it. And so looking for all these ways I can work, make things work together. Uh, it's it's this really dispiriting to me when people get two or three kinds of livestock and then they separate them out in different pens so they can't come in contact with one another. Well, you know, you're you're missing a huge part of not only the profit that could be realized in that system, but just the synergy of it. Everything working together. Getting out of the monoculture mindset is just hard. It seems like we've come into this idea, I do one thing with this. And I do one thing here. And I can't, I'm not even going to think about trying to put them together and make something that's more than just two. And that's too bad. Yeah. I mean, I think we're missing out on all kinds of opportunities. Can you take us a little bit through maybe what a typical
1: year would be? Or a couple, it's, 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 it's not a year, because you're doing things that are, some of your cover crops are, you're extending over several growing seasons, but what a typical uh, cycle would be for you with the livestock and in and the, and the cover crops and everything?
0: Well in the winter time like February we start uh, setting transplants now we have uh, maybe one or two hoop houses that are empty some of them will have like cool season crops in them some of them will be empty. All right, Those are the ones that we're gonna put poultry and we're gonna start some poultry in there because one of the problems with hoop houses is, is you raise Vegetable crops all the time, very, in a very concentrated way. You build up these soil-borne pathogens and, pathogens and diseases, mm-hmm. and you can't saturate it with some kind of toxin. We have seen people use heat to do that. But the better way to do it is just take them out of vegetable production for a season, put a cover crop in there, raise poultry in there. They'll fertilize that thing for several years, and they'll break up the disease and pest cycle. And, and you're producing a very highly profitable crop because greenhouse space is, is an expensive space. So I need a high-value crop in there. But a crop doesn't have to be a plant, necessarily. It can also be an animal. Mm-hmm. And poultry meat the perfect yeah, example yeah. Of, of ways that you can think. I don't like to use the term think outside the box because it's kind of overused. But you need to think outside of the monocultural Box at least, yeah. and think uh, how many different things can I do, and how will those things all work together to give me more than I could get if I had each one separately. A really another another
1: nice really example you gave was your wheat, your your use of your uh, use
0: of wheat and cover crops. And I guess it was was a red clover. Yes, you were, red clover yeah. as a, a cover crop that's frost seeded into fall planted wheat. So we'll plant wheat in the fall. will come along. February, March, I'd like to do it ideally on a snow-covered ground, if I can do that. And uh, then in our part of the world, uh, about the 4th of July, 4th to 10th of July is is wheat harvest. And so we are hoping to have that, that cover crop about 16 inches tall by that time. And we want it to be thick. So I'm going to overseed it. And the reason for that is, that particular variety of wheat is tall enough to stay above it, but it's also very weak, stalked. And if I have a bare spot, that wheat's going to just fall over. So the wheat's, the cover crop is holding up, literally, the crop. And the crop is staying high enough so that I don't have to worry about getting green matter in with the combo. Yeah. But now my cover crop or my wheat crop comes off and I've got this beautiful 16, 18 inch tall stand of red clover. I want to maximize the value of that clover. And the way I can do that is not only economically by grazing and putting pounds on beef cattle, which is, but a lot of that red clover now is going to be processed by a cow. All right, The cow's going to eat that, it's going to process that into a product that is more valuable than just the green cover crop. So I'm adding value through the manure as well as the cover crop. And that's kind of, if I do that well and I do that right, I can see year in and year out an increase in both the yield and increase in both the weed control because I'm smothering that out and I'm producing a high-quality, well-marbled meat the customers want yeah. and uh, when in our area when people talk about grass finished beef not just grass fed grass finished mm-hmm. beef uh, you have to really be careful that you get a rate of gain that's high enough to marble the meat or you'll have uh, some really tough nasty yeah. yeah and you know that's uh not not a good business move there mm-hmm. but we can gain three to three and a half pounds a day on a beef cow with that kind of legume. Now, there is a certain risk of uh, of bloat with a legume like that, and we watch, we make sure that when we turn the cows out into that crop, we do it, we fill them up with dry hay, and then we turn them out about six, seven o'clock in the evening so that they can't just run out there on an empty stomach and fill up with that. And then we watch pretty closely, usually within a day or two, if you're going to have a problem, they'll show up pretty quick. But that's, it's actually pretty rare. I think a lot has to do with not sending them out there on an empty stomach.
1: I think one of the most striking examples you made, and it was a great slide that you showed because I think about this a lot is there's a lot of concern about cover crops everybody thinks are a great idea but we just haven't gotten them established on as many acres as we'd like and you I think pointed out a really good uh, uh, reason for maybe that is that often it's put as this is a cost to the farm maybe it's a long term maybe you're going to get some long term benefits but year in year out it's for the near term anyway it's going to be
0: a cost but you said that's really the wrong way to look at it. Absolutely. And part of the reason that happens is there's a lot of very large operators who are going annual contract. Long-term goals? My long-term goal is to get through this year. And I don't have... I'm I'm bidding up the cash rent. I don't have assets to spend more money on something that's only a long-term benefit for the guy who owns the land. And so, I mean, I understand the thinking. I understand the thinking. I I hate it to think that people do that. But I, I understand the thinking. So... When we talk about cover crops as something that can add income to your operation, that it can be profitable in the short term, mm-hmm. not just in the long term, and right. it is obviously a long-term investment right, right. in soil health, but it can if I can make that a short-term profitable thing to do, and that the obvious ways with livestock, I don't, there may be other ways. I don't know yeah. what they are. You don't want to cut that hay off, bale it, and then sell it, because now you've exported all that right off the farm. Right, That's right. the opposite of But if I hire those cows to come in and turn it into fertilizer, then I, can, then I can make some money. And if I can make money with that, it's a whole lot easier for me to swallow, hey, that extra cost of seed. Now, having said that, a lot of people don't want to mess with livestock. Uh, one option they have, there's something called the Midwest Grazing Exchange, where you can go to a website that looks to match up people with livestock and people with some land that uh, they'd be willing to graze that may be an option for you but i think the bottom line long term here is that we're going to have to get over the monoculture thing we're going to have to start adding diversity i mean it's not just that one reason there's there's such a long list of reasons there there's no way around that we can't monoculture our way out of this yeah. situation
1: i don't know if you can do those off the top of your head but can you just go through that slide that you where you showed the actual income that you're getting kind of blow-by-blow blow a
0: little bit and how it kind of totaled. Do you remember that? Well, I remember we were talking here about 75 days of grazing, mm-hmm. and we used uh, one animal unit per acre as in, in the average year, whenever whatever that is. Yeah. So that's not necessarily what you actually do. But we, we shot for 75 days, gaining three pounds a day. Uh, our direct market price is either, well, it's actually about 350 a pound carcass weight, which translates to about 210 a pound live weight. And when you take that times 75 days, you get 225 pounds of gain times your $2.10 a pound. Mm-hmm. And uh, then you have you take out some for the cost of the cover crop seed, and you add a little bit for the nitrogen. Now, that nitrogen number is assuming 15 months in the ground, and it's assuming the benefit of the grazing, the manure benefit. And uh, we're calculating that at 160 units of nitrogen based on yield primarily, but uh, year in, year out, I think that's probably close. And so you're looking at almost $500 an acre. In fact, uh, when those numbers were written, uh, nitrogen was way cheaper than it is today. So it's probably a little bit over that. But if that doesn't get your attention, I mean, I don't know what to tell you. In the Midwest, we don't raise much wheat because, well, two reasons. It's really... Uh, humid, and that makes it hard to get a a good quality weed. But it just doesn't compete economically with corn and soybeans. Now, if I can add that 500 bucks to that acre, now it competes with corn and soybeans. And so now we have a reason to go that extra mile to do that extra work, because we're seeing the real advantages of it. And the diversity part of it, crop prices tank, well, livestock is a whole different category. And since I'm working in a direct marketing environment, the consumer doesn't you know, the prices don't change wildly, Like they, right. they change somewhat. But they don't change to the extent that it does if you're in a commodities market. Uh, when you're growing uh, food grade wheat and you're marketing that to, in this case, another uh, farmer who's got a mill. Well that's a much more stable price situation too because his price is pretty stable. So he can afford to pay me a fairly stable price. It's stability throughout the system. And there again. This commodity market has got us hostage, right? We, we say, oh, there's a price for corn and soybeans when I'm planting. And so I base my expectations on that. But when harvest time comes around, often that the whole picture changes. Well, in this, in this direct-to-consumer world, those prices change a little bit. But they don't wildly you know, fluctuate like they do in a commodities market. Now, this is, you know, speculators are making money off this. Well, that's fine. I don't have anything against speculators. But my business, profitability is mine business. <laughs> I'm not here to make money for someone else. And so, speculator, good for you. I, I wish you all luck in the world, but not at my expense. Could you just take us, just do a rundown of how many acres
1: you're farming and the different enterprises you have uh, going right now?
0: Well, we are running 450 acres right now, 350 of which is home place, if you will, and then there's another 100 acres uh, north of there that's farmed separately. That's where our flower farmer <laughs> is operating in there. Uh, enterprises include uh, some vegetable crops, and that that amount varies due to the pandemic. We were at around 80 acres and 16 full-time employees, and all of a sudden we're at about 12 acres and maybe six yeah. because there's just no... And so that illustrates well, I think, and other reasons why the diversity really helped us out because we also have grain. We also have livestock enterprises. We didn't bet everything. If we had bet everything on vegetable crops sold to to uh, restaurants well we'd we'd be doing something else yeah and so that's just another example you want to have a lots of different things going some things will fail but not everything and some things just won't mesh Uh, that's one point you really made Mm -hmm. that's that's absolutely right some things just don't and uh, if you allow yourself to get into that vulnerability sooner or later you're going to get caught in the bad spot
1: do you have an example of something that You tried out and it didn't mash, didn't quite mash? Uh,
0: We tried an awful lot of things that (laughs) didn't uh, last too long, certainly when you're in vegetable business. uh, One of the things, I guess, that didn't work was that we thought we could do everything. We could grow vegetables, we could process them, we could market them, we could haul them, ship them. We we could do everything. And that worked pretty good until the pandemic hit. And then what we're realizing now and what changes we're trying to make here is that we need more infrastructure, so that we don't have to try to do everything, and we don't take all of that risk. So we're working uh, with something called the Farm-Fed Co-op. It's a community that's starting a cooperative. And again, this is one of the things it's starting with is getting food in the public school, because it's a kind of a stable market. And so, all right, let's eliminate whatever things we can that are instable and, and create as much stability in the system as we possibly can. And uh, so I think that is what we're going to be looking at as we move through this pandemic and get on the other side of that. We're still going to need that infrastructure. For example, uh, green beans. You know, one acre of green beans picked by hand is an awful lot of green beans. 80 acres of green beans with, with automatic pickers, that's doable. All right, so maybe if we have this infrastructure in place, my neighbor who's a corn and soybean farmer, he might say, well, you know what? I could do 80 acres of green beans or sweet corn or some other crop. Now we can scale up total volume in a way that's doable for other people who aren't as goofy as we are when it comes
1: to how we're trying
0: to farm. Mm -hmm. So I think that's gonna be an important part of our future. And a necessary part because I think, especially with schools, you know, the the lack of nutrients in our vegetables. I had a slide showing that. Uh, you know, we're feeding more and more stuff that has less and less food value in it. And that's bad enough for old geezers like me. What about little kids? What's that gonna mean for them when they're five years old or six years old and they're eating that kind of stuff? Are they gonna make it to 70? <laughs> you know, that, that is, that's a big deal for me. Yeah.
1: Well, and speaking of food and marketing and schools and and the pandemic, one of the really good pieces I think you talked about was you've uh, worked with and you're familiar with the work of Ken Meter. Mm -hmm. And I'm very familiar with his work as well. And he's really done a good job of pulling out statistics showing that. There may be a lot of economic activity that agriculture is producing in our rural communities, but that wealth is being sucked out of our communities. And you really feel strongly that there are ways we can maybe develop a food system that keeps that wealth generating locally.
0: There is no question about that. We need that. That's just about as high a priority as actually growing vegetables that have nutrients in them. We can't afford to, to produce this really high-quality food and then let someone else suck all the profit out of it. Uh, That doesn't make any sense. So what we need to focus on economically here is not only producing a high-quality product that people are willing to pay for, but how am I going to keep the wealth I generate from this land in the community? And that requires me to do value-adding and marketing in my own community, too, as well as just growing raw materials and then letting somebody else have them. 85% of the profit of it It makes no sense to me. So what Ken has done is a wonderful job of pointing out just what those numbers are. You know, if you're wondering, well, in my area, what does that really mean? Well, you can go into his website and you can see what that really means. You can put real numbers to what size of loss that we're experiencing. And that matches with what you see when you drive through rural America and you see all these boarded up small towns and barns in the middle of cornfields with a roof caved in. That's how we got here. That's how we got here. Yeah, you had a good example. I think you said 32 counties in, in Illinois. 32 counties in Illinois, and Ken did a study in 2011 on that and found that we were bleeding about $5.8 billion a year just because we were letting someone else's value-added market. Yeah. And I, uh, I asked him in 2018 if he'd do an update on that one for me, which he did, and it was up to $8.8 8 billion. <laughs> and it's like... Oh, my gosh. From 2011 to 2018, things have gone downhill that much. Does that match what you see when you drive through rural America? Sure does. So what you're
1: doing is really, you know, I was sat in that uh, presentation you gave. People got really excited about that. And I don't know how many other farmers you talked to and other kind of small business owners and and folks who are maybe looking at some of the who are thinking this way. But, I mean, how positive do, do you feel? Do you feel that there are some changes occurring, or do we just have a really lot of work to do yet?
0: Well, we have a really lot of work to do yet. But, yes, I am optimistic, and one of the reasons I am is because when I see our major universities shifting focus, that tells me we're headed in the right direction, because we really need the ability of the university to do research. You know we can't just guess at stuff yeah. we need somebody who's able to do research we need an institution that's able to educate our young people and, and take this information and pass it around without that it was, a, it was a tough fight. Yeah. But that is, and this is just, I'm talking things that occurred in the last two to three years. Here. Uh, the University of Illinois uh regenerative agriculture initiative. They hired a professor of regenerative agriculture. That's a first in Illinois, at least. When you see Purdue, U of I, and Iowa State, our three biggest ag universities in the Midwest, form a diverse corn belt project. Here, we got to get more diversity in the Midwest. Well, that is fundamental to any of these things that we've been talking about. Mm-hmm. Diversity is just like the basis of everything. Without it, you, you go nowhere. Yeah. And so that kind of thing gives me encouragement. Where I teach at Hartland College in Bloomington, this two-year certificate program looks at, what about young people that just want to farm? Mm-hmm. Maybe they got a degree. Maybe they can't afford a degree. All right, here's a two-semester program that's very targeted. This is what you need to know. Take this, and you, you can go out there in and, and, and two years without having to spend a million dollars of debt, and you can learn what you need to know. That is the kind of educational opportunities we need. And the other thing is we, as farmers, need to partner with the universities and allow them to do research on our farms so that they can do research in real-life places. You know, not in plots (laughs) that somewhere have nothing to do with anything. This is right on the farm. And, uh, you know, those are things that, that really change things. Well, that land-grant mission, that's what it's supposed to be all about. Well, yeah, but, you know, it hasn't been for it hasn't been <laughs> no. for quite some time. And it's just, to me, really encouraging when I see that change. You know, oh, my gosh. Uh, I, I don't think there's a single other thing in the last two years that encouraged me more than just seeing that happen.
1: And are you seeing a lot of you must with your teaching? You must see a lot of young people who are really interested in these things.
0: There are a lot of young people that are interested in farming. There are, in fact, in uh, one of the universities, they had six 763 students in the ag department, and 75 of them were traditional farm kids. All right. Now suddenly you have got all this large demographic of kids who really probably aren't interested in corn and soybeans. Well, what are you have? To, what do you have to offer them in place of that? And if you say, I don't know, your ag department's in serious trouble. So kind of in a way, they are forced to look for other alternatives. What, what do you want to do? And then, all right, if you want to grow vegetable crops, we need a horticulture program. that really works. If you want to grow livestock, it's going to have to be something else other than, how do you run a CAFO? Because they're not going to run a CAFO. How do I integrate livestock in the operation? And then we're a better place to, to have that conversation with young people But in the university. Yeah.
1: And because this always strikes me so much because I see it so much in the Midwest and you know, in states like Illinois, Iowa, I'm from Iowa originally, Minnesota, <laughs> where you have all of this, some of the richest farm ground in the world. And you have, in, in, when, I think it's more striking, even more striking when you see a farm like yours who's showing that there is this diversity of food that can be produced for the local community. But it is so striking that so many of these communities are basically food deserts, and it's all of this great soil and all these you know really people who know how to raise food and all that. But we have this uh, some of the worst food deserts in some of this 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 place with this some of the the deepest and best
0: topsoil in the world. Yeah, that you know there's there's no logical reason for that. That's just abuse of the land. I don't know how else to say it. You know, if you have this incredibly fertile, eight foot deep black topsoil, and you manage to turn it into something that's basically holding up a plant, how are you going to blame Mother Nature for that? Yeah. I mean, you know, the, let's face it, that's just, there's no reason for that whatsoever. And, you know, I, I just hate that, just kind of makes you sick to your stomach when you see something like that. Let me hit you with a question, okay? One of the criticisms leveled against local food systems was, well, you know, local food systems are great, but they can't supply everything, right? What about coffee and bananas? Yeah, that that probably doesn't grow in Montana, right? Right, right. So your local food systems can't really supply everything. Now, would you agree or disagree? Here's the way I would... (laughs) (laughs) Thanks a lot. (laughs) Gotcha.
1: The way I would look at it is, and it's a little bit taken from Ken Meter's work a little bit, is this idea of a food web where you have a connection with somebody who maybe raises coffee somewhere else or bananas or whatever, and it's you know who's raising it and how they're raising it kind of thing, and that that's the way you look at it rather than
0: basing it too much on geography. I don't know. Is that a spin? <laughs> that, that is very perceptive. You You are right on the money. Uh, the way I answer that uh, is to use the illustration, in Bloomington, Illinois, we have a coffee house called the Coffee Hound. And uh, they, when they wanted to serve local coffee, they went to Central America, I think Nicaragua, it's specific, formed a relationship with a coffee cooperative and made arrangements to have raw beans shipped back to Bloomington. They roasted them and sold them in their store. So, is that a big deal? Well, yes. And the reason it is a big deal is because By doing it this way, rather than buying from a coffee broker, which is the alternative, right? There is no third party here that sets the price and extracts value from the transaction. All of that value remains local somewhere, maybe half in Central America and half in Central Illinois, but nowhere is value being sucked out of the community. If you drive around rural America today and... and look at what you see you're looking at four decades of a third party setting the price and extracting value from the transaction. No. We can. We can supply every product known demand through local food system. So the keystone there seems to be that relationship that was it's being developed. Right. And and getting that extractive entity from just literally sucking the lifeblood out of you. Yeah. You know it's it's unforgivable that we should have just a handful of corporations making billions and billions of dollars at the expense of Everyone in the country, right. essentially.
1: Right. Well, and I think for you, speaking of relationship, is you're, you talked a lot about the deep connections you make with your customers and how you, these valued customers, you know, you you don't have to have thousands and thousands of them. If you have a handful of really valued customers, that, and they, it sounds like that they, I guess I was curious, how much are they, so obviously if you aren't producing a good product, they're not going to come back, but right. but they must also are they appreciating what you're doing for the community and for the land, too? Is that something they talk about?
0: Oh, absolutely. That's one of the reasons they started buying local in the first place was before that. Now, once I start buying local, I begin to wonder, am I really getting what I think I'm getting? No. You know, a uh, classic example being the jug of milk with the beautiful bucolic picture of the cows in the pasture. And then you find out those cows they haven't seen anything green in their whole life. Well, is, are you doing what you see, what I think you're doing, really? I'll tell you what, come on out. I promise I won't sue you for taking a picture. <laughs> come on out and look for yourself. And uh, while you're here, you know, bring the kids out, have a enjoyable day, wander around the farm. Make this a destination. Now you have a connection with that person that produces your food in many different ways. And uh, next spring we'll have a big plant sale and we'll have somebody, we'll have some live music and we'll do yoga in the lawn and we'll, we'll have just a fun day. Right, and, and this is the type of thing that, that formulates relationships rather than just customer. And once you start that, once you begin to appreciate all of that, and you're getting this good food too, sure, that yeah. changes everything.
1: Yeah. Well, it sounds like you saw a little bit of that. And you uh, did a, an exchange in Europe. You visited Europe and, and saw some stuff that uh, really struck you.
0: That was an eye-opening experience, and that's why I proposed to the Montana Organic Association that they try to sponsor these types of what I guess you would call uh, research trips. When you get outside of your own little environment and you start looking at how other people do things, first of all, it's really eye-opening, you know, and there are a lot of different ways to do things. And in some places of the world, they're way ahead of us. Some places in the world, they're not, obviously. But the perspectives that you'll get the relationships that you come across by getting out of your comfort zone Mm -hmm. and just going and looking around the world, I think especially for young people, need that. Need to get out of their own little world and find out about that that great big world out there. Uh, That just changes everything. You just give an example. You had a couple of
1: really good examples of something you observed, I think, in Germany.
0: Well, one of the things was the 160 cow dairy right in the, literally in the center of a town of 3,000 people, and of course the first thing that comes to mind is, gee, if I went home, and I proposed to you know, a city in central Illinois that I should do that, yeah. you know, they'd have me locked up in a straitjacket. <laughs> but it's not a big deal over there because that's that's what local f- food system means to us, yeah. and yet we. We see things through our own lens so narrowly sometimes. It's really hard to get that lens out of your way and look out there and see what's going on out there. Well, and I'm thinking those people see that 160-cow dairy, they
1: see that it contributes to the local economy, it's producing food for the local community, so it gives them a reason
0: to support farming, (laughs) you know, and food. (laughs) And it makes them understand that just because you have 160 cows in the middle of town doesn't mean it stinks to high heaven. And they had some hogs in the middle of town town, our outgrown pasture. They don't stink. Yeah. But in this country, we associate hogs with places that smell so bad you can't get within two miles of it. Right. Well, that's a design choice. That's not inevitable. You can design a hog barn to stink to high heaven, and you can design one not to. Your choice. It's not inevitable. Yeah. Okay. Yep. <laughs> and, you know, that's just one of the things that people come back thinking, wow. Wow, they can you can do that. Yeah.
1: <laughs> for more information on Prairie Earth Farm and community-based food systems, see the podcast page for Ear to the Ground number 300 at landstewardshipproject.org. If you have comments or suggestions about this podcast, contact Brian DeVore at bdevore at LandStewardshipProject.org, or you can call 612-816-9342. By the way, it helps us greatly if you can give Ear to the Ground a rating on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or whatever podcast platform you utilize. Thanks to Laura Borgendale, a Western Minnesota musician, for Ear to the Ground's theme music. And a special thank you to all of Land Stewardship Project's members who make initiatives such as this podcast possible. If you're not a member, visit landstewardshipproject.org to learn how you can support LSP. Thanks for listening.